Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hey, mamacita, welcome to the Mamas con Ganas podcast. That's mamas as in, hey, mama, y te traemos episodios para que tengas las ganas de motivarte, surgir y triunfar. Don't be a mama con drama. Let's be mamas con ganas. I'm your host, Valentina Izara. On this episode of the Mamas con Ganas podcast, I am interviewing Rosalia Rivera, consent educator, founder of the Consent Parenting, and host of About Consent podcast. Rosalia, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me on to talk about all of these important topics. Oh, yes. And your topic, and if anybody's listening and you're a parent, or even if you're an aunt or a grandparent, this show, I think, is like one of the most important shows that I've brought on on Mamas con Ganas, because it's on a topic that I think a lot of us can consider taboo, because it's about sex, and educating our children about sexuality and the importance of boundaries and consent education, which to be honest with you, Rosalia, before we spoke, and I think this is quite a, a new term, consent, right? Education. Yes. Mm-hmm. It so is. I didn't really know what that meant. So I want you to explain to our speakers a little bit about, about, about this. And with your platform, you are teaching people about body safety, boundaries, and consent. Now it's those three things, but aren't those three things the same? Can you explain to us a little bit about what's the difference? Yes, for sure. So people tend to think of body safety as what encompasses all of that. However, when we talk to children that are young, we want to educate them about topics that include learning how to listen to your intuition and looking for red flags, uh, learning about what parts of our bodies are private versus um, boundaries, which are something that it relates to all aspects of our physical being, not just necessarily our private parts, right? Um, so when we talk to young children about body safety, it really has to do with educating them about their rights and being empowered about what is okay or not okay for someone else to do, particularly adults, um, but even peers, right? So it, it's, it goes across the board. However, one of the things that I think parents are afraid to talk to their kids about because they think it's going to be scary is things like stranger danger or um, grooming. So that includes basically what predators do to break down the boundaries of kids so that they can gain access to them and abuse them. They do that with parents as well. So when we talk about body safety, it's really about educating kids on exit strategies, what to do if they find themselves in a situation, um, learning how to listen to their bodies and their intuition so that if they feel something is not right, to get themselves out of an unsafe situation. So those are the things that encompass body safety, including um, aspects of sexuality, which include 
you know, body parts and being able to be open to talk to our kids about uh, describing them in the, in the proper terms, in the anatomical terms, instead of, you know, using a, a euphemism or some other word that sounds like it. So educating kids on those aspects all have to do with body safety. But when we talk about boundaries, it's really about learning that our body belongs to us and we have the right of how we want to exchange uh, any kind of physical interaction with someone else. And it also is about respecting the boundaries of others. So we're not just talking about protecting ourselves, but also learning how to respect the boundaries of others, learning body language so that we can read when someone doesn't want us to touch them and when we don't want someone to touch us. So boundaries has more to do with understanding our physical boundaries as well as our mental and emotional boundaries. So that is an education that even a lot of adults don't don't have or don't know because they weren't raised with that. And that can change also with with cultures, Mm -hmm. right? Because I know, I remember in business school, they taught us, you know, the different things that were appropriate in terms of like proximity within cultures. And some cultures, if you get a little too close, let's say more than three feet, that's like considered already like getting too close. Whereas in our our Latino culture, I mean, we Mm -hmm. we tend to be more touchy and, and, and get a little bit closer. So I think yeah. as an adult, we sometimes we don't we're not aware of those things when we go to another culture and we realize that, you know, the proximity of our bodies even changes within what's the norm of our culture, right. right? Right, exactly. And I think that it's so important for us to understand that really uh, boundaries is what we've determined is okay for us. Okay. Everyone has the right to have their boundaries, and it's you know some people may say, well, I'm a hugger. Well, that's great for you. You love hugs, but not everyone is a hugger, right? So we always have to think about boundaries of other people and respecting them. And then when it comes to consent, consent is actually just the communication of those boundaries. So consent is learning how to vocalize that you do or don't want something, that you do or don't like something, what you're willing to accept or not accept. And then if something, if someone crosses that boundary that you can stand up for yourself and say, no, that's not okay. And vocalize that clearly so that there is clear communication. And it's something that because it was, you know, as, as a culture, I think across all cultures, it's not something that was really ever talked about. Even if you look in, um, you know, old movies, right? Like James Bond movies from the sixties. If you look at the, the number of consent violations that we think are so normal, like the girl is portraying herself as very um, sort of shy and demure and she doesn't really want James Bond to kiss her, but her physical uh, response is no, but she really does want it. So you're kind of confused as to whether she wants it or not. And then he goes in and he's the conquest and it, it looks like this very sort of romantic, passionate conquest. But in fact, if we look at it today, it would be considered the opposite. It would be considered a violation of boundaries, right? She was clearly physically saying no, but she wasn't communicating it in a way that was like, absolutely no. So we're left with this not, like there's no understanding in culture of how to clearly say that. If you talk to teenagers today in high schools, they don't know how to ask for consent. They don't know how to say yes or no in in a sexual interaction because it's not being talked about in a really open way, that they have the tools of communication 
to say yes or no and negotiate those kinds of interactions. So consent is really that communication piece. And that's where those, those differences are uh, between body safety, boundaries, and consent. And yeah, there's definitely a shift that's happening. I see, like you said, from generation to generation, like you said, in the movie, in the old movies, things that would be considered. And I mean, that's, you see that with sexual harassment, with things that were not considered sexual harassment that are now considered sexual harassment. And I think the men in our culture, a lot of times boys are also confused as to what is a girl giving consent and what is not considered the girl giving consent. So having these open communication with our children, teaching them as to what is okay, what does it mean? Like, what does it mean when a girl really is inviting you, you know, to to Mm -hmm. allow her to touch you or even the male side, because um, you talk, you know, your platform is also to prevent uh, sexual abuse, right? In children. Absolutely. Yes. And, yes. you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it just as important in boys as it is in girls? Like if parents are only, you know, uh, parents of boys, should they be as concerned as if they're only parents with girls? No, it's, it's both. It's any gender, really. It, it doesn't matter what gender your child is. It's, it's just as important. And when we look at statistics that are reported that, for example, one in four girls and one in 10 boys are abused. Um, The reason that those statistics for boys tend to be low is because of the way that we are, that boys are raised to um, be strong, to this sort of toxic masculinity uh, tells boys not to, uh, number one, you you know, if if it was a male perpetrator um, and they're afraid that what that would mean about their own sexuality now, a lot of times boys will not report. And so there's a very low rate of reporting. So the number of one in 10 boys is more than likely a lot higher. And those numbers in general are probably a lot higher because unfortunately, most children do not report. And when they do report, it's either not taken seriously or they're not believed or the case doesn't go to a prosecution level. So these numbers are actually quite low. And in terms of boys versus girls, it's equally important because perpetrators um, go after either boys or girls. And so it's not something that we should say, oh, well, girls are more vulnerable. Uh, it's, it's really across the board. So it's important to educate. And long term, again, this also helps them to learn about the risk, you know, respecting the boundaries of others as they get older. Yeah, I think sexuality is one of the most important conversations that we can have with our children. And mostly and particularly because um, being sexually, I would say, not just sexually aware, but being comfortable with your body, having the ability to communicate, you know, what, you know, what you would like and have an open communication with something that is, you know, so important in our lives because it plays a big role in our lives. I mean, it's, it's paramount. It's definitely something that we need to talk to our children. And unfortunately still in our culture, we see sexuality everywhere, but the communication between parents and children is still not as open as it, as it should be. Mm -hmm. Well, here's, here's the truth is that your children are being taught about sexuality whether you step in or not. They're being given messages. Yeah, they're, they're learning about it through the media that they watch, through the advertising, um, going to school and listening to older kids on the school bus. I mean, we are in a... Through TikTok, saturated. Instagram. I mean. Exactly, exactly. So, 
you can choose to be the one that helps guide your child on these really important topics, or you can let other people do it and really be misguided. And what, you know, I, I say that I'm a sexual literacy advocate because I think it's important to educate kids about sex. We are, as humans, sexual, social beings. And for us to deny that aspect of ourselves and to shame our children about thinking about it, being curious about it. Because they're going to be doing it anyways. They're going to be thinking about it anyways. Exactly, exactly. So to shame them about it actually makes them feel like there's something wrong with them thinking about it. Um, It creates a lot of issues in their lives as they get older, but also it leaves them very open to the possibility of abuse because when they, their curiosity is natural and when they start to seek it out outside of the home because they don't feel safe asking the parent, they're going to be a lot more open to accidentally coming upon mainstream porn or asking the wrong person who could then take advantage of that situation. So it's really important to become the authority for your child, to be the guide, to have open communication with them and invite the questions and let them know that it's okay for them to know and ask, but also to guide them with the right information in the first place. Um, Because they're not going to then want to go and seek it out elsewhere. They're going to always come to you. And wouldn't you rather be the the person that they come to for those questions, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I read that the average age that a kid these days comes around porn and sees it on, on, on the internet is between eight and 11. Yeah. I mean, in, in our generation, this was not the case at all. This was not readily available. I mean, either we found magazines like stashed in our parents' room, or maybe, you know, when I lived in France, I remember there was a channel on Saturdays that had like soft porn in it because the French are very open about it. But, you know, here in the U.S., I mean, or your parents had, I don't know, HBO or something, and they let you watch TV, but it was much more controlled because you had to access to the, you had to have access to the TV. Nowadays, if your kids have a phone at a very early age, or even if they're using your phone and you're not watching, they can, yeah. you know, they could be going in and seeking information it, that is definitely not appropriate for their age. Yeah, it's unprecedented. And it's also, it can happen completely by accident. For example, a child can be on Instagram and they see a, an account from a really attractive young woman and they start scrolling through it. And there's nothing overtly sexual about it. But it's probably the account of some, um, you know, sex worker who's in the porn industry. And the link is to one of her videos on Pornhub. So as soon as you click the link on on her account, you're taken straight to Pornhub. Just like that. Oh, my God. So when parents think that it's, you know, hard for their child to stumble upon it, it is way easier than they realize. And so this is one of the reasons why, I mean, when parents freak out thinking about, I have to have this talk about porn. Well, the reason they're freaking out is because they haven't had the talk about what sexuality is. And, and funny enough, my kids were watching um, an episode of Friends with my husband yesterday. And I think it was Chandler had said something about a condom. And so they're like, well, what is that? You know, so my, my husband and I are very open with our children about and how old are your children? So that our audience, so eight years old. Okay. So eight and six, but the way that the, the way that we just, well, he described it specifically, um, because when you think about explaining what a condom is, that means that you're explaining that sex is for something besides reproduction. So my children already understand that 
you know, in order to reproduce, one of the ways that you can do that is through intercourse um, without getting overtly descriptive and, you know, but understanding a sperm and egg and all that, you know, basic stuff, right? Age appropriate. So for him to have to explain what a condom is meant that he had to explain that people, adults, because we always explain sex is for adults, doesn't necessarily have to be for just reproduction, right? So there was a bit of a conversation, very surface and very matter of fact. There's no shame. There's no like, you know, oh, how do I explain this? We just explain it very uh, clinically, very scientifically. And they very, like, they were kind of like, oh, okay. All right. So let's keep watching because, you know, just not even a blip. Yeah, I think we have a hang up more than they do. Because I've taken the same approach with my son, my 11-year-old. And, and, um, I think the first time I had the sex conversation, he was around eight because I had received an email from the school actually telling us that we should ha- have a conversation about uh, online predators. So mm. I took that opportunity to say, listen, like if anybody ever asks you to send a picture of you, you know, naked and my, he was like, mommy, why would I do that? Like, I was just saying, right. listen, I'm just having this conversation with you because the school thinks it's important. And right now there's a lot of people who, you know, are, and I explained to him what a predator was. And then there's people that, that even steal children. And yeah, it was a whole conversation. But as soon as it was over, he's like, oh, okay. And then that was it. Yeah. Whereas we build ourselves, you know, we get so scared about having the conversation. But for them, once it's done, it's like, they're like, oh, okay. They just accept it as right. what it is. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and we tend to have a lot more um, negative emotion or charge to those conversations because particularly for survivors, which is the audience that I specifically work with more, more often than not, they have obviously history and trauma that was related to childhood experiences. And so this content can feel very triggering to talk about. Um, it took me a lot of work to be able to be comfortable to talk about that kind of topic, like just the topic of sex. And I consider myself to be someone that is sexually empowered. I've done a lot of healing. Um, I consider myself to be very sexually open. I think it's important for us to talk to our kids about sex, um, but it still took a lot of work for me to be comfortable to do that. And I'm very fortunate that I have a partner who is, you know, never experienced any of that and is a lot more comfortable and grew up in a sex positive home versus myself that grew up in a sex negative home where I was, you know, taught that sex was totally sinful and you, you shouldn't even be thinking about it. And if you have, you know, sex before you get married, you're going to go to hell and you know, so there was a lot of negativity charged around it. So it's taken a lot of work. And I think for parents, if they've had any kind of those kinds of issues, they, they grew up in a sex negative home or they had any kind of trauma, that it will take a little bit more of, um, you know, processing, healing and educating themselves on what their values are and their beliefs are around it in order to educate their kids in a shame-free way. Yeah, I think... The, um, the topic of machismo has a lot to do with, you know, like you were saying, like a negative uh, feelings around sexuality. Because I feel that in the Latino culture, like sexuality is like forbidden for the woman and it's supposed to be very bad for the woman. And, you know, mm. if she has sex before marriage, she's seen as like, I don't want to say the word. And then the man, it's like he's not allowed even to say that he doesn't want it because then you're not man enough. Right. Right. So it's, it's these dichotomies and maybe that's also why the boys don't come out as, uh, you know, when they get exactly. sexually abused because exactly. they're, they're supposed to be welcoming any type of sexual interaction at, you know, exactly that comes exactly. their way. 
it's yeah. The, yeah and i think it, it i think the um the the americans are a lot more um sexually open and i've learned a lot from because i know that my my american friends were their sexual um their perception of sexuality was very different also from the home that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. My parents talked to me about sex and they told me, ask any questions that you want. But at the same time, it was like, ask me what you want, but don't have it. Right. Or you can't <laughs> have it because it's a sin. <laughs> right. Right. But ask me, I'm open, but don't yeah. you lose your virginity. That was like, right. you know, my sex talk. So it was, I mean, I was fortunate. I was able to ask all the questions that I wanted to, but at the same time it was done as like a, it, this is a bad thing. It's a bad mm-hmm. thing. It's not something that you should be doing outside of marriage. And right, yeah. right, right. What what age, Rosalia, should parents start talking about this subject with their kids? So, it in terms of body safety, it should start as young as two, two um, years old. As young as two years old. Yeah. Okay. Um, particularly because if your child is going to a daycare or a preschool or you're preparing them in inevitably to go to kindergarten, you know, we're, we're always preparing them to be in the care of others. And so if we're not starting to educate them on their rights over their bodies at a very young age, it's going to be harder for them to, uh, to really implement that as they get older. So the younger that you can start, the better. And they can start with very simple things. It's, it doesn't have to be anything that's scary. I was going to ask you, like, what kind of conversation do you have? I mean, what are the words that you would use with a two-year-old? This is very different, yeah. you know, from a conversation you have with an 11-year-old. Yeah. Well, the very, very first things that you should be talking about are educating them on the language of their, of their body parts, their, you know, their genitals, their private areas. Um, and it's a perfect opportunity because at around two, between two and three, parents are starting to potty train. And so it's a perfect opportunity for them to incorporate it without it being weird. And it's just a very natural conversation about talking about the different parts of the body. And there are some great books that parents can pick up and, you know, you can go on Amazon or any, you know, online bookstore that carries um, body safety education books. And so all of those talk about the parts of your body, um, the fact that they're private and, you can start to educate them on who is allowed to uh, help them, you know, because they're still in the, at that stage where they need help being cleaned or, you know, if they're taking a bath, those are opportunities where you can talk about that. And so it starts to instill the idea that their body is, is theirs, it belongs to them. But I also tell parents, you also have to practice it. You can't just tell a child that their body belongs to them and then just say, okay, come here, I have to brush your hair. You have to start to ask can I brush your hair and just start to model the fact that you are always asking for that permission. Oh my God. I'm so guilty of that. I'm like, come on, Leo, I got to brush your hair. I'm like, yeah. I just grab his head and start brushing it. And he's yeah. like, no mommy. And I'm like, it's, it's, <laughs> I got to start yeah. implementing it that. Is a, it is a really radical shift that, um, you know, when I teach my course, I, one of the biggest things that I have to educate parents on is making this shift because most people will say, you know, your body belongs to you. Don't let anybody touch it. Okay, now come here, I got to brush your hair. And we just immediately, you know, so what we're subconsciously sending the message is that a figure of authority still has the right over your body. Oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah. And so that that conflict of a message can really become uh, confusing to a child if they are being groomed by a predator because they are now endearing themselves with somebody who they start to trust, that they start to like, 
And then that person also becomes a figure of authority, much like the parent who is showing them love and affection. So they must not be doing anything wrong. If they start to abuse the child, they're, they're confused with that message. Well, this person loves me, and, but they're asking me to do this thing. It must be okay. Whereas if we really make the shift and really empower our children about the rights over their bodies and that someone always has to ask. So for example, in my courses, I give parents consent letters and there's a consent letter for a doctor. So you bring this letter with you to your doctor and it basically says the doctor, like I've taught my kids about consent and about consent education. And so what their expectations are going to be is that you are going to inform them. So what that means is you have to tell them what you need to do, why you need to do it and how you're going to do it. And then you need to ask permission to do it. And then you have to wait for the child to grant permission. Now, this is really hard when they're really, you know, little, like a two-year-old, but I'm talking oh God, about- Can you imagine? Know, can I put the injection on the vaccine? Well, the but it's, like, to, no. it's to at least inform them, right? And, okay. and these are conversations that you need to have yeah. ahead of time too. Like, you're not going to just bring your child and then, like, they need to know that- They need to know, yes. Not office. just grab them and do whatever you, yes, you're going to yeah. do, even at the yeah. doctor's office. Exactly. And so that way they always know, okay, someone who needs to do something to me physically always has to ask and I have the right to say yes or no. And so when you start as early as two and it's an ongoing education process and you practice it, it, it really does empower the child to understand. Uh, my youngest, for example, or my oldest rather, um, has really beautiful curly hair and he still sometimes doesn't know how to say no to someone if they're trying to touch his hair because he's so like nice and gentle and he wants to be nice to everybody. So we have these conversations sometimes, you know, where like I, I went and touched his hair and he's like, mommy, you know, like, I don't really like that. And I said, oh, okay, sorry. You know, I, I, I won't. He's like, yeah, at school, sometimes people touch my hair because they love my hair. And I said, well, do you tell them that you prefer that they don't? It's like, well, you know, I don't want to be mean. But these are the situations where we want them to start to learn about being empowered and saying, you can say it in a way that's not mean. You can just make sure that you're communicating. So it's always about an ongoing conversation with them to teach them how to vocalize consent in different ways. And it, it's, it's an ongoing process. So start at two, but wherever you are, if your child is already eight and you've never had these conversations, it's not too late. Just start wherever you are. Yeah, it it's makes me think of, you know, it's interesting because I never thought of it, of it like this in the sense that, that people might not say what they actually want. Like they might not actually think that they have the right to tell people, listen, I don't really like that. Or that they may actually be doing things just to be liked. Mm -hmm. uh, and when sexuality comes, perhaps that's like a lot of people's hang, hang ups when they're teenagers, like maybe they don't really want something to go on, but they don't have the courage to speak up and say it. So gathering exactly. that courage and being able to, to say it in an effective way where, you know, your, your voice is heard is super, super important. Yes. Yeah. And one of the things that I teach in my course, uh, specifically about, uh, body safety is that courage piece is learning how to teach kids to um, embody courage to embody consent and it really gives them another layer of, uh, of protection because it helps them to if I'm in a situation where I don't feel safe I can say something versus shrinking in and not knowing what to do 
Yeah. And I think it also has to do with personalities for people that are shyer and kids that are shyer. I feel like the parents have to be even more aware of teaching their children. Listen, you have to speak up when something is not okay. Cause mm-hmm. they'll, they won't have the tendency to do so because of their, because of their shy personality. Right. Um, Rosalia, you, you know, you, you mentioned that your platform is really that you teach this mostly to sexual abuse survivors. Doesn't this really apply to all parents? It does. It applies across the board. And it's something that I'm passionate for all parents to educate their kids about. So on my social media platforms, I, I, I'm very open to share this information with all parents. However, my programs are very specifically designed to help survivor parents navigate this content because a lot of times it can become very triggering when you're talking about educating a child on the topic of sex and self-pleasure and masturbation. That can be really triggering for a parent who maybe that was the way that they were abused. And so when they have to talk to their kid about self-pleasure, it may be a really difficult topic. So what I weave into my platform courses and education in my membership is to help them learn how to navigate those triggers through self-regulation. So talking to them about before you have these conversations, make sure that you're doing X, Y, Z so that you can manage that anxiety and you can get through this because it's such important information. You don't want to you know, skip areas that are important because these, you know, and I talk about why they're so important. So if you have the why, if you know why it's so important to educate kids um, on specific things, like even self-pleasure, then you'll understand, okay, I need to push through this. And you can't just dive into it because it will, it will actually make it worse. It'll actually make you stop altogether and say, you know what, this is too hard. I'm just going to overprotect them which is what survivor parents typically do as a default. They'll restrict their social activity or they'll restrict uh, extracurricular activities. You know, if a child wants to join a team that is going to be traveling a lot, they may say, you know what, I'm not comfortable with that. We're not going to do it. And so they end up just not educating their kids altogether. And in the long term, that's actually much more detrimental to the child as they go into their teens and young adults. This is one of the reasons why uh, camp, you know, rape is so prevalent on campuses in universities because they weren't educated about their rights. People don't know that consent can be withdrawn. Women don't know how to communicate a yes or a no clearly. And it's not to put the responsibility on someone who is assaulted. It's clearly on the, you know, the responsibility is on the person who's doing the assaulting and the abuse. But it is also important for uh for all persons to recognize that if they can be more clear and more vocal and recognize those, you know, signs of danger before they even get into those situations, um, it will reduce the, the, the chances that they would become a victim. So when I talk about, you know, speaking to survivor parents, it's because it becomes intergenerational because they're afraid to teach their kids. And so that they end up not teaching them these children become five times uh, at a higher, five times higher risk of becoming abused um, coming from parents who are survivors. Wow. So, so it's kind of like the whole abuse, like the, the, the it's the cycle of abuse, not exactly. like sexual abuse. So it's basically keeps on going. It goes from generation to generation. 
Um, I think what you're doing is beautiful because in essence, what you're doing is breaking this cycle of abuse that you say exists and that you say is more pertinent in families that have already had abuse happening and you're breaking it through the healing process. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we spoke for the first time, you were telling me, you know, it's very important for the person and the person who's been abused, sexually abused to heal themselves. So they're able then to, you know, to talk from a, from a healed place to their children and then break the cycle in a very effective way. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about the, those courses specifically that you're offering? And I know that you're doing some, something's happening right now. And this is why we decided, you know, let's do this interview right now. Tell them about that so that they're aware. Thank you. Yeah. So for parents who are, maybe they haven't disclosed to anyone yet, Um, and they haven't started healing, it sounds like a very scary thing to dive into. So in my course, I'm not a therapist, so this isn't therapy specifically, but you do become empowered and you do start to heal through the process of educating yourself and learning grounding strategies. So in my programs, I walk parents through an actual um, formula, you know, a framework that I've created so that they can learn how to navigate these different aspects of, you know, abuse prevention education, um, specifically through, uh, you know, working with energy cycles, learning different grounding techniques like EFT or breathing meditations, um, and and also when to utilize those grounding techniques. So, if throughout the program, there is a lot of support. Um, I'm opening up a membership because I created a course, I beta tested it last year, created this amazing course, I got amazing feedback from parents. But one of the things that we came to realize is that because of the amount of information that you need to learn and teach, it really has to happen over time. And specifically for people who are still feeling like it's really triggering, they need time to process this and they need space to actually take the time to do it in their own way. And what I mean by your own way is, you know, if you can only do a small fraction of this this week, that's okay. You you don't have to rush through the content. So I decided to open it up as a membership that's ongoing, that gives support and community. So the beauty of that is that there's other survivors that are going to be in the space that are supporting. There's no shame, no judgment. Um, so it's a split, a place where whether you have disclosed or not, you feel welcome and you feel you don't feel judged. Um, and that's what survivors need, you know, as parents specifically, because there's nothing else out there. I've done the research. I've looked for, you know, those kinds of groups and they're just not out there that are specifically helping in this way to both educate the parent, but also help them navigate all of this kind of information. So my my course is going to be included within the membership. The membership is also um, very affordable. That was one of the other pieces that I wanted to make sure it was accessible to as many people as possible. Um, so I'm really excited because I'm. This is my passion. This is what I think I was put super on this. Excited. Earth I think too. it's super exciting as well because I feel like this is something that's not talked about enough. And a lot of people that we might not even know that are in our surroundings have, you know, mm-hmm. have suffered from sexual abuse because it's something that's so hard to talk about. You know, I, a lot of a lot of people don't even tell their best friends or mm-hmm. their wives. I know people who, you know, who don't tell their husbands or their wives about it because it's just too they feel too much shame from this. 
Exactly. And I think this type of work is, is important. And, and I will add something for people that might be hesitant on doing something in groups. There is such power in healing when you do it with a group of people and in a workshop where you go in and you have, um, like you said, a membership program. And the healing process a lot of times happens, not a lot of times it happens, the healing process happens when you decide to make it happen. Yes. And it does take time, like you say. Like yeah, and it's not linear. You know, people think you, you're at point A and then you're going to get to point Z. Um, healing is an ongoing process. I mean, I consider myself a thriver um, where I can, I can now experience a lot more calm and joy in my life. I don't get as you know, anxious as I used to. I, I've been able to heal a lot of aspects. Um, and I come from a family of survivors, so there's still a so lot a of... Are you a survivor yourself? I'm a survivor, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I also, like I said, I come from a family of survivors, my mother, my siblings. Um, I also believe my father, although I you know, don't have exact proof of that, but um, based on his actions... So this, you know, I've, I've seen this from every angle possible, both, you know, male and female, because that's, you know, part of my family history, unfortunately. Um, so when I talk about, you know, helping survivors navigate, it's because of what I've learned myself when I started my own educational journey so that I could teach my kids. You know, I have three little, three young kids, age and, ages eight and under, and this was very difficult for me in the beginning. And I know what those pitfalls are of being too triggered, stopping, starting, seeking the information, getting triggered, starting, stopping. And the only way that I was able to navigate it is I decided I was going to dedicate myself to my healing so that I could move through this. And so I've learned all these really powerful strategies through going to, you know, therapists and hypnotherapists and, you know, all the education that I've learned uh, through just learning about all these pieces that I know have empowered other parents when I started working with them and has helped them to see those results in their kids now as well. And I also read, Rosalia, that you're certified in conscious parenting mastery. Yes. Yeah. So I, I took the uh, course with Dr. Shafali. And that was really empowering as well, because it actually reinforced all of the things that I was already teaching in terms of really giving our children the space to become autonomous beings, right? So um, there's a lot of, of really great things that I've learned through that. Um, in June, I'm actually going to be also starting a certification program to become a neuro coach, um, because I believe that... It, Ooh, you know, I believe that. What's a neuro coach? So a neuro coach is someone who can help you rewire the patterns in your brain. So if you have a lot of negative patterns of the way that you think and you process information um, that are preventing you from doing things in your life that are beneficial. Don't we um, all have that a little bit? We all have that, yes. Um, and so I went through that program myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I, I went through that program myself. Um, it helped me tremendously. And I found a way to apply it to helping survivor parents to learn how to get through a lot of this. So it's another, um, you know, tool piece that I want to add to to my skill set to be able to help parents. And so I'm going to start that certification with Dr. Sharon Irvine in June. Um, and that's a year long program. So I'm excited for that because eventually I'll be able to apply that as well. And it's it's really we are 
capable. You know, I, I think a lot of survivors tend to think that they're broken, that they're not, that they're beyond, you know, repair. And it's not true. We all have amazing power that we can tap into and we can empower our, both ourselves and our children. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I, I also named my membership the Empowered Family, because you can go from a place of feeling like you're surviving to actually thriving. And so one of my missions is to help you know, all survivors know that they, that they are whole and they just need to tap into that power. Yeah, that's beautiful. There's nothing more powerful than somebody who has gone through an experience, who overcomes that experience, because they have so much passion in letting other people know what it feels like to be healed and to thrive after so much pain. I think that is so powerful. Um, I have a question. What's more relevant these days? The online or the offline predators? Because I know earlier we talked a little bit about, you know, the, the phone and the internet, like what should parents be more concerned about with right now? So unfortunately, the answer is that online is becoming a higher, greater danger. Um, they've been at par since the internet started um, because parents just didn't know about either. They didn't, the, unfortunately, the, the one statistic that a lot of people don't know about is that 90% of all child sexual abuse happens with someone that the child knows. 90%. So a lot of times, yeah, 90%. So they tend to think that, yeah, it's, it's a crazy number. And was, the thing is that people used to teach about stranger danger, right? And the truth is that it's actually people that they know, people that, you know, offline, when it comes to online, people think, well, my child will know that, you know, they know about stranger danger, so they're going to know. But the truth is that predators are disguising themselves. Um, I was just listening to a podcast episode today from the New York Times, which is really disturbing. And I put it on my Facebook page for anyone who's interested in checking it out, that this, this girl had been groomed by someone for months. You know, so people think, oh, you know, my child will, will know right away. Or that they, it's some guy that, you know, is going to show himself. But they disguise themselves. They take the time to develop a relationship with So that's child. what grooming is. I know you've talked about the word grooming. Yeah. But again, for people that don't know, grooming is like what the predator does in order to sort of warm up. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, to develop a relationship that the child begins to trust them, to like them. So this, this girl was talking about, um, you know, she was 12 and she became friends with this girl online and she didn't know that this person was actually a predator. They knew all the language to say and, you know, all the cool words and all the music. And she just was, she thought she was talking to another 12 year old. And so over the course of six months, became friends with this person who claimed to be, you know, at a different school in the same city and said, hey, why don't we meet at such and such place? Ended up meeting with them, got taken by this guy in a car, and basically was kidnapped. Now, that seems like an extreme situation, but unfortunately, like it's, not, it's sex trafficking, yeah. And it's not as uncommon as people think. Um, but beyond that, the, the explicit sort of criminal world that's happening online today also can happen through what's called sextortion which is when they convince a child to send some kind of, you know, images of themselves. Um, and then they've gotten them so sort of in their web that the child now is 
you know, potentially panicking. So they're either bribing them or threatening them. That's what um, the conversation that I had with my child. That was what was happening. Yeah. It's yeah. more and more, more and more, popular, unfortunately. Yeah. So 10 years ago, uh, according to the statistics from the FBI and, and ch- uh, child centers, that it was uh, online sexual material of child sexual abuse because um, it's not it's no longer being called child pornography, by the way. It's called child sexual abuse material because that's really what it is. Um, so it used to be uh, 10 years ago that they were finding that there was like 600,000 images that were being transferred throughout the Internet. How many? So 600,000. Okay. Yeah. So that was, that was 10 years ago. Today, uh, on an almost daily basis, it's 64 million. And they're having a, an incredibly hard time. They're, you know, these law enforcement agencies are incredibly underfunded to be able to keep up with the technology that can spot these kinds of images, be able to take them down. But even more importantly, to try to track the original source so that they can find the children that are being abused in these images. So when we talk about educating kids, it's definitely become something that is much more prevalent online today. And with the accessibility that kids have, it is so critical for them to, for parents to learn how to educate themselves and how to then teach their kids. Um, with, you know, there's several ways uh, that, that parents can do that. It's not impossible, you know, Parents shouldn't feel overwhelmed and then give up and say, oh, my God, I'm just not going to give them a device because eventually they'll get one. Eventually, they'll you know, be able to access the Internet one way or another. Yeah, but I do think that there's an age appropriate for that. Like I'm still my son's in middle school. He's one of the only kids in his middle school who still does not have a phone. Like I personally, yeah. we had a, we had a talk like an expert that came into our child's school. We put our, our son in a private school this year. And we had a group of people that came in and talked to us about the fact that in reality, kids are not ready. Like their brain is not ready to know how to handle messaging and even bullying and all these things online. And like even sexual um, approaches that were be or sexual content in general, they're not ready for it. And their brain hasn't developed enough to where they don't do risky, like teenagers are known to do risky things, but it's not because- right teenagers it's because their brains are not developed it's the development exactly and they recommended that kids that are in middle school should definitely not have a phone so when I heard that I was like well that's enough reason for me yeah I know yeah. most parents are way more open-minded in terms of that but that I don't know for me it, it totally freaks me out yeah I don't you know I don't think that it's actually um that that they're more open-minded I think that they're just not um aware. They're, they just don't understand the dangers. Um, I recently just posted two articles as well on my Facebook page about um, kids that were contacted through TikTok. Um, you know, girls that were just posting videos of themselves dancing, you know, they were like eight years old, and someone just immediately started contacting them. But what I what I say is, you know, the parents should have at, at the very minimum, if they're going to allow them to be on an app, which I agree should not be that young, but if they are, then the very minimum thing that they should be doing is making sure that they are, one, monitoring, monitoring their phone very closely, and two, that they make sure that they keep their accounts private. Yeah, um, and a lot of parents don't know that a lot of the apps that kids use nowadays, there's no way to monitor them because the stuff gets erased as soon as they send it. 
mm-hmm. like all this stuff like Snapchat and TikTok, there's ways to send messages where actually we, we had a list we, um, that meeting. We got a list of the 15 apps. You could probably Google it. The 15 apps mm-hmm. that parents should, or that parents should be aware of because most right. of those apps, the messages get erased. So we may look at the kid's phone thinking they just have the WhatsApp messages, but in essence, the, all the stuff in the conversations that they've had with with the people that they're in contact with, those messages have been erased and there's no way of tracing that. So right. yeah, that's it's hard for parents to be, and that's why I chose not to give my kid a phone at this particular moment. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, one of the thing that I always say is, if you're going to be, if you're going to give a child a phone, then that means that you should be at the point where you're ready to talk to them about sex. Oh, absolutely. So if you can't, if you can't talk to them about it, then you should be giving them a phone. Yeah. And also, I think one of the most, one of the very important things also is not allowing them to bring that phone or that device into their room. Yes. Like if having a policy, they told us having a policy where you know, where, when the kid is on the phone or on the computer that they're back, you know, that the, you can see the phone from where they're at because if exactly. you your son looking at the phone, but you don't, you can't see what he's doing. That's not a good thing. Cause he could be, yeah. doing, he or she could be doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Exactly. And yeah. but unfortunately, I mean, our kids, no matter how immature they are, there's, they're certainly don't have the maturity of a, of an adult. Yeah. And they're going to make mistakes. I mean, that's the nature of children, right? So I think it's one of the books that I recommend for any parent who's looking to um, educate themselves more on how to navigate this is a book called Viral Parenting by Mindy McKnight. Viral Parenting. Mm -hmm. And what was that app? Because I know the first time we spoke, you told me about an app. I think that was genius. An app that helped parents do monitor, but it's particularly for preventing sexual predators. What's that app called? Right. Yeah. So I just did a podcast episode with uh, Titania Jordan, who's the CMO of Bark. So Bark is the app that I was recommending. And it is basically a technology that allows you to uh, put this app on your children's, uh, you know, digital device, whatever, whether that's an iPad or a phone or even a laptop. And it monitors for specific language. So this way, parents don't have to constantly be checking in on the phone. I mean, I recommend that they do anyway, but you can't, you can't catch everything, right? And sometimes you don't know if your child is telling you everything. So this uh, device essentially captures um, any kind of uh, language that has to do with sexual, any kind of sexual nature, um, suicide ideation, or anything that... Uh, would sound like bullying. So online bullying, um, uh, suicidal ideation or sexual abuse, any of those sort of phrases that the um, AI catches will be notified to the parent's phone who also has the device and is connected. So if something comes up, the parent would be notified right away so that it alerts them to check and communicate with their child about it. Yeah. And, and for our listeners, you know, Rosalia, like I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, also has a podcast. It's called the About Consent Podcast. So she has an entire episode on that app. Uh, so I, I invite you guys to check it out. And we'll be giving the other handles of your social media afterwards. But before we do, before we wrap this up, because this is so interesting, let's leave our listeners with some like tips. Like what are some like, you know, must tips for like, you know, 
first of all, cutting this, you know, if you have been a victim of, of sexual abuse, how to cut and break this intergenerational cycle, or just in general for any parent listening, what can they do to prevent, you know, uh, predators from, you know, or their children from predators? Yeah. predators? Yeah. For sure. So one of the first things that I recommend, and I mentioned this before, is, is to be open with your children about the topic of sex and sexuality, which isn't always easy, but you can start doing it through age-appropriate ways. So I recommend getting yourself tooled up. So get the tools that are going to help you have these conversations. Uh, get books that you can talk about these topics with your kids. It gives you the language. It gives you stories that you can use. Um, the, you know, your kids connect to characters, right? So a lot of these children's books are made so that children really understand it from their own perspective, you know, through the eyes of a character. Um, so you don't have to have these conversations without tools. So make sure that you're getting yourself, you know, the right books. Um, I have a list. I'm always, you know, on my Instagram, I'm always sharing book recommendations. Yes, I saw that. Tell them your Instagram. Mm. I know we're there. Tell them your Instagram handle. Yeah, so it's Consent Parenting. And so, you know, and there's lots of great resources. I'm also always recommending other accounts too. There's so many, you know, wonderful accounts that are helping to spread this message. So there are books that I always recommend. I, I specifically say have a library of about 10 books. I have a recent post actually that tells you all the different kinds of books that you should be getting. So you can talk about the different topics. Um, there's seven things that I recommend that you need to talk to your kids about. And I have a PDF that you can download as well for free that says, you know, you need to talk about body safety, uh, sorry, boundaries. Um, you need to talk about autonomy, consent, exit strategies, you know, what to do if a child is in a situation that's not safe. Um, talking about confidence and courage and how to develop your intuition muscles, talking about sex and sexuality. So there's seven things. Um, and it's, if you go through this in a slow process, that's okay too. Don't feel like you have to tackle it on all at once because then you will feel overwhelmed and your kid can't process that much in one shot anyway. So this is about having often like ongoing conversations. It's about being prepared, not scared. So you won't scare your children if you take the time to slowly work through this content and you know teach it in a pace that doesn't freak you out, but is still ongoing. So it's, it's really just about making these conversations, not just one or two talks. So start with books. Um, there's also great resources online with videos that you can watch with your kids. There's some really fun videos that, you know, that talk about consent in a way that's really approachable and not scary and doesn't have to be sexual um, because there's a, there's a time and space for that too. Consent when it's related to sexuality is really more for when kids are older, but it's also, you know, just learning about your rights in general so that those conversations become easier as they get older. Um, so yeah, arm yourself with books, get yourself, you know, connected to the resources that are going to empower you to have those conversations and just start. Yeah, I think it's very important, like what you said with books, because books allow us to convey messages that sometimes we don't know how to put in words or mm -hmm. in the words that are best equipped to exactly. arm children. <laughs> so definitely the books, check out Rosalia's Instagram, which is consent parenting. And like she said, she does have a free guided, a free guide 
It's a free uh, PDF that you can get and it'll give you the plan of action that you need to get started and protect your child from sexual abuse. And that's at consentparenting.com. That's yeah. awesome. And, um, and if they also want to sign up to your class, where should they go? So you can go to um, really any of my pages. So if you go to Consent Parenting, it'll connect you with the link. I have a three-part uh, three class right now that's open. It's going to be um, closing up on March 1st. So you have only until then to watch these three free classes that are amazing, um, that are really going to help you create what I call an abuse prevention toolkit. So this really helps you to understand what you need to look out for, what the risks are, who's at greatest risk. Um, it helps you learn how to navigate through a lot of these triggers so that you can then start to teach the things that you need to teach. And then I I'm going to be uh, talking about what are the things you need to teach, how to teach them, the tools that you need, and then how to create that action plan so that you can really dive in and start to do it. Awesome. So mamacitas, let's start talking to our children about these important subjects. I think it's something definitely that we need to do as parents in order you know, to help them for the future. And for anybody who's listening who might have been a victim of sexual abuse, you know, this is a way to really break that intergenerational cycle. Empower yourself. It's a, you could be a moment for you to heal alongside other people who have gone through the same thing. And, and at the same time, educate your children so like I said, that you break that cycle and, and your family is free of, of that. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Absolutely. And yeah. especially for our cultura, you know? Oh, for our cultura. I see, no, y la cultura sobre todo, definitivamente. We've been speaking in English the whole time. <laughs> yeah, for our culture. You know, perhaps mm -hmm. uh, we should be doing this in Spanish. We, we should, you know... Uh, think about I actually am planning on doing that. Yeah. In the, in the spring of this year, I'm looking to create my course in Spanish as well. Um, and I'm also going to start to do some episodes in Spanish uh, on the podcast. So. Great. So then when you do create your course in Spanish, you get in contact with me and I'll bring you back on and we'll okay. do podcasts all over in Spanish. Because I do think that, um, that our culture does need this. Um, we need to empower ourselves um, sexually. We need to yes. become aware of all these things. Uh, because a lot of times we, the things that we're taught are not necessarily the things that empower us for yes, the future. Exactly. So yeah, we just got to keep on bettering ourselves. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I've, I've loved the conversation and uh, I love everything that you're doing. So thanks for having me. It's Valentina. Espero te gustó este episodio de nuestro podcast. If you liked it, or if any of our content has inspired you in any way, I'd be ever so grateful if you showed some amorcito by reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. Every single review will help us reach more mamacitas so they can live their life con muchas ganas. It's because of you, our listeners, that we're able to create contenido para otras Latinas. Un millón de gracias por suscribirte, escuchar y compartir nuestro podcast. Si tienen preguntas, comentarios y más, pueden visitar nuestra página web mamasconganas.com or follow us on social media at mamasconganas. You can also write me directly at info at mamasconganas.com. Hasta la próxima. Es Valentina recordándote, don't be a mama con drama. Mm -mm. Let's be mamas con ganas. Besitos.